So um, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker. There are, some, there are many of you who may not have been here last night, and so Wendy Backland is from Bethel, Reading, um, uh, California, and we are privileged and honored to oh, have her here with us. And last night was really good, and we are looking forward to more today. And um, Wendy, as we were as we were uh, talking about having you come up, I just really wanted to pray for you before um, you uh, take the seat. So if you, yes, please. Would you guys join with me? So Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you for Wendy. Mm, yeah, I just thank you for her vulnerability, for her honesty, and just sharing what you've poured into her, that you're, she's just pouring it back out and we can receive it. I just thank you that, um, that she's able to share with us and that her load would be light, that you say your burden is light, your yoke is easy, and I just thank you for what she's going to bring today, and I just ask for us to have open ears and open eyes to hear and see what it is that you're doing. Yes. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I got this picture, um, I'm a sign language interpreter as a job, and the sign for, to, um, to say I'm going to be real, like you're going to see the real me, is this sign. It's like you you just like open up yourself and let somebody look inside. Wow. And I just felt like that is what you've done for us. And it's so, it's such a good thing for, for a role model, for a mom to show you like what it's like to be real. And I just feel like you did that and we have, we can take that and do that ourselves. So thank you.
you know, but one of the things on this journey about joy that one day, you know, God began to talk to me about the fact that I never laughed out loud. And, you know, laughter is good medicine. Yes, right. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. And one day I was complaining about how tired and how I seemed to be sick all the time. And God said, do you know why you're sick and tired all the time? And I'm like, because I'm busy. I said, no, because you're not taking your medicine. And I'm like, you mean that scripture, the joy of the Lord is your strength? You mean that literally? Like, yeah, you don't have strength. You're tired because you don't laugh. At least out loud. I was one of those people who laughed on the inside. That's funny. And God said, there's no health benefits to laughing on the inside. I'm like, but I, I like to be in control. And I like to be authentic. And when I laugh out loud, it sounds fake. And he said, it's not fake, it's rusty. <laughs> it's been so long since you laughed out loud, it doesn't sound like you. And so we went on this journey about learning how to laugh. And I mean, he even incorporated it into my devotions. I'd read the Bible and pray, and then he'd say, now go online and read jokes and laugh out loud. Because you need to get used to the sound of laughter coming out of you so that you don't feel so, you know, like every time you laugh, everybody's looking at you. Like, is that real? But one of the things I, I we started investigating laughter, you know, even the world knows the benefits of laughter. I, I don't know about Michigan, but in California, they actually have laughter-sized classes. Yeah, they just get together and laugh. Because it's, it's so beneficial for your health that they even say that 10 minutes of hearty laughter is equivalent to being on a rowing machine. Yeah. And it releases endorphins. And so we're on this study, and, and I read this article, and it said that even fake laughter is beneficial. And then what really blew my mind, this is why I got sidetracked on this bunny trail, is that they said that laughter can actually jar your brain. You know how you get stuck on that record thing? You know, what they said goes over and over and over in your head, or what you should have said. And when you laugh out loud, even if it's fake, it jars your brain because our brain is electrical, you know, currents that are going through and they get stuck in certain pathways and laughing out loud will actually jar it out of the pathway. Wow. Yeah. And it works. I actually tried it, yeah. One day, um, my husband and I were, were, I can't remember what state we were in, but through a misunderstanding, we ended up getting late to the airport to go home. And I'm like starting to get anxious because by the time our trips are done, I want my own bed, I want to be at home, and I don't want to miss a plane and, you know, that whole thing. So we get to the airport late, and this airport 
only has one security line and it's huge. And it was a really poorly run system going on. And I happened to get stuck between two really tall guys who were complaining over my head because I'm rather short. And they're talking about, you know, this airport and how they need, what they need to do. And everything within me is like, yeah, I just want to join in and complain about this airport. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and then God goes, what did you just talk about today in the church? <laughs> oh, yeah. So he reminded me about the laughter thing, because I couldn't get the stress and all that out. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to try this fake laughter thing. So I just go, ha, <laughs> <laughs> <Not> loud. <laughs> around me started, you know, they just stopped talking. I don't know. <laughs> I may have scared them. I don't know. <laughs> Who's this crazy lady? <laughs> but the whole atmosphere shifted. And then they started sending out new people to make new lines. And it was crazy. <laughs> about, you know, my husband and I, we were, uh, I, I got so sidetracked last night that I don't even know what I shared. You have no idea how many bunny trails that was. Um, so my husband and I, we got saved. We were hippies together before we were married, you know, into the whole searching for truth, you know, tried this and that. And, even tried trans transcendental meditation, and because you know everybody's really looking for some peace in life. And um, my husband, he was at university at the time, and there was a guy in his dorm that whenever they would get together and get high, he was a backslidden pot smoking Christian. And whenever they would get high together, he'd start talking about God. And then he gave my husband a book, and because I'm more of a reader than he is, Steve gave me the book, and I'm reading it. I was raised a Mormon, so, you know, there was a lot in here that I, I had no idea. It was called Love Is Now, and how God loves us just the way we are. And so I'm following him around reading this book. You know, did you know this? And so we ended up getting saved because of a pot-smoking, backslidden Christian. Because <laughs> God can use anybody. I don't know why we freak out when God wants us to witness to somebody. If he can use a, a backslidden Christian to get someone saved, he can use you. He can use you accidentally. You know? Especially when you really know who you are. Because it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. You know, when God started talking to us about hope, I really had to struggle with that because it's like, come on, God, the, you want us to be hopeful about everything? And I'm like, well, let's be honest. There are some things that are hopeless, right? And he said, well, Wendy, you have permission to be hopeless about anything I'm hopeless about. Woo! That's good. That's good. 
Guess what? He's, he's not called the God of all hope for nothing. The problem is, is we, our circumstance isn't our problem, our perspective is. So I started trying to give hope to people I was counseling to. And you know what the, the main thing people would say when I tried to give them hope was, but Wendy, I have to be realistic. And I didn't know what to say to that. I'm like, what do I say to that guy? And he said, tell them no, they don't. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think they'll take that. And he said, tell them I haven't called them to be realistic. I've called them to be supernatural. Whoa. And it hit me, the only reason we become hopeless is because we haven't factored God in. Because our hope isn't in the natural realm. Our hope is in something supernatural. I mean, I had a, a family member that, you know, I'm sure you've all had one of those family members that you pray for, but you don't really believe will ever get saved. Yeah, one or two. And I had a niece that I just was like, I'll pray, God, but, I, you know, she was so... She had been so addicted to drugs and alcohol, I really didn't even know if her brain could understand the gospel message. And she had uh, lost all of her kids because of her addiction. She was homeless, living on the streets. And I just didn't see how she could ever get saved. Until one day she called and she said, Aunt Wendy, I just want you to know that I accepted Jesus. Yeah. And I'm like, how? <laughs> right? Because evidently I didn't learn this in evangelism school. And she said, well, I was sitting on a bench waiting for a bus. And I went into a trance. And I met Jesus. And there's this whole long story of what happens in her trance. And she said, and when I came out of the trance, I was instantly delivered from all addiction. <laughs> Hopeless was because I hadn't factored in the supernatural. Yes, yes, yes. Whatever it is you're hopeless about, we keep running over our mind what past experience says and what the experts say. Oh, your child was abused. They'll, it'll take years and years and they'll never ever be normal. <coughs> That's only if you don't factor in the supernatural. Because my husband and I were pastors, I did a lot of counseling, and my heart just ached for how many women had had their lives totally shifted because of one act of violence to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I would just be like, God, this is not right. That darkness could affect a life so dramatically that they never feel whole, they never feel whatever. And God said, Wendy, if one act of violence can change their life forever, then how much can one act of love do? Amen. We need an encounter with love that is so powerful that it wipes away every memory. It changes, you know, because when something happens to us and we start feeling shameful because of it, we get our identity out of it. 
And God wants to give us an encounter that actually shifts our identity. Yes. Deep inside. That we don't have to try to feel worthy. We just know we are. Because we're a whole new creation. God said, you know, Wendy, you're not being stopped by what happened to you in the past. You're being stopped by what the conclusion you made about yourself when the past happened. It wasn't that shameful event, that big failure, that is keeping you from your destiny. It's what you determined about yourself when that happened. You created an identity out of an event. I'm a failure. I'm not worthy. And we have to stop getting our identity from an experience. How do we define ourselves? Do we define ourselves from our circumstances or from something deep within? You know, when God started talking to me about my identity and telling me that I was going to be a speaker and you know, I never wanted to do that. I never wanted to travel either. God's got such a sense of humor. Because the first time I got up to speak in front of a really large crowd of about 20 people, <laughs> and I stood up, looked at the people, started crying, and just turned around and sat down. That was my first public speaking event. And I remember saying to myself, I will never speak in public again. Yeah. Now I do it for a living. But I had to sacrifice my belief that I was a poor public speaker. I had to bury it on the altar. And I had to begin to declare something different. And then I started getting these wild prophetic words that I was supposed to write books. And I'm like, I can't write books. I've never done that before. And God said, that's where everybody starts. Have <laughs> you ever tried that excuse on God? But I've never done that before. Guess what? Everybody starts there. <laughs> So I'm like, I, I can't write books. And, but, I mean, it, was, it got totally crazy because I was getting people, I don't it seemed like everywhere I went, people who didn't even know me were walking up and saying, you're supposed to write a book. And I'm like, okay, God, this can't be coincidence. So it was that's all I hear. It was a good one, too. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so he said, but you cannot do what you don't believe you are. So I said, you need to start declaring that you write books. So I'm declaring I write books, I write books. It's easy for me to write books. And about two or three years goes by, and I still haven't written a book. And, and then this doesn't work. And God said, I want you to change your declaration from I write books to I'm an author. 
because one is an action and one is an identity. Whoa, come on. And I'm like, well, that sounds really good, but isn't that lying? Because in my dictionary, an author is someone who's actually written books. And he said, well, is it lying to call an apple tree an apple tree before it's had apples? I'm like, no. He said, why are you smart enough to know that an apple tree doesn't get its identity because it's had apples? An apple tree gets its identity because it was created to have apples. And if it dies before it has apples, it's still an apple tree. And he said, Wendy, if you die before you ever write a book in heaven, you will still be known as an author. Because it's not your identity because you've done it. It's your identity because you were created to do it. And the things that God's been telling you you are, it's not because you've done it. It's because you were created to do it. And if you were created to do it, how hard can it be? (laughs) The only thing making it hard is the stuff going on in your head. You're opposing yourself. You're saying you can't do it. Because you're believing your past experience. Because you're still getting your identity from what you've done instead of what you were created to do. And it's kind of scary to start asking God, what was I created to do? And the the thing is, is we're not supposed to really get our identity from from an action or a title. Um, If you think about... um, Joseph, remember when he has the dream that all these things of wheat bow down before him? and So he gets this calling on his life that he's a ruler. And the first thing that happens after that is he gets sold into slavery. And if he was like most of us, we would think, my brother's ruined my destiny. Now I cannot be a ruler because I'm a slave. Because if you use your title to define who you are, it will stop you from being who you are. But he was so convinced that his identity was ruler, not his title. And what happened was he became the ruler of all the slaves. Because he didn't define himself by a title, he defined himself by what God said he was. And then he was put into prison and he had another opportunity to define himself by his title. But instead, he defined himself by what God said about him. And he became the ruler of all the prisoners. Nobody can stop your destiny because it's not something you do, it's something you are. God gave me a, a life verse Isaiah 61. And, you know, Isaiah 61 is that verse that Jesus quotes later when he begins his ministry about, you know, I'm anointed to preach good news, to open prison doors, declare liberty to the captives. Um, You know, it's, it's just a great verse. 
And the whole verse I've just meditated on for years and years and years and made it mine. And the biggest part is, is I had to convince myself that the verse isn't something I do, it's something I am. Because if it's something I am, then I don't have to perform. I love to just take things to a whole nother level. I just like to believe if I'm anointed to set captives free, then I accidentally set captives free. <laughs> I walk by. And light bulbs go off in their heads for freedom. Because it's an, it's an anointing that has nothing to do with my performance. My husband and I are really into declarations because it's changed our lives. I mean, we don't do declarations to convince other people. We, we say declarations to convince ourselves because faith comes from hearing and hearing. And so one of our declarations for many years was we have favor with both God and man. And one day we were traveling in a car and we were going back and forth saying declarations together and and I said that you know we have favor with both God and man and before I had time to think I heard myself say we have so much favor that even if we tried to get people to dislike us we couldn't and I'm like where did that come from I don't even know if that's even legal <laughs> And I heard God speak in my heart, and he said, Wendy, I put those words in your mouth because I wanted you to understand that favor is not just from performance. It's also a spirit. You've probably met people with a spirit of rejection, people you hardly know, and yet you don't like them. It's because they carry something. And unaware there's also people that you've met that have a spirit of favor on them. You know the one, they're the ones who are jerks but keep getting promoted. <laughs> you know, it's like you work twice as hard as they do, but they get the promotion. Because it's not about their performance, it's about a spirit that they carry. Probably it's a generational blessing that's been passed down through their generation. And they're totally unaware of it. But what that did for me when I heard those words that even if I tried to get people to dislike me, I couldn't, I realized, oh, I don't have to perform for people anymore. I, I fully believe if God wants you to like me, you will. And I remember having a, a time when it really hit me. I'd been saying that for a while, and um, back in the 90s, I don't know if you guys know who Wes and Stacy Campbell are, but in the 90s they were a really huge prophetic voice in the renewal that was happening. And I was kind of raised on some of their stuff, and they'd have such an impact on my life and changing it, that they were like spiritual heroes, you know. And I remember, in the early 2000s, Steve and I were invited to speak at their church, and I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I get to speak at Wes and Stacy Campbell's church. I mean, you know, think of, you know, 
whoever you admire, Rodney Howard Brown, uh, Benny Hinn, whoever, think about you getting to speak at their church. You know, it's that, whoa, this is so cool. So I'm so excited until Sunday morning comes around and I'm sitting next to them and it dawns on me, oh, I have to speak in front of Wes and Stacey Campbell. <laughs> I don't know why it didn't dawn on me earlier. <laughs> but as soon as that thought hit me, my declaration popped in. Even if you tried to get them to dislike you, you couldn't. That's good. I was like, oh, yeah. This isn't about performance. And in my speaking, I started having faith in the supernatural. Because, you know... Part of the reason I didn't speak well was I was so worried about not remembering what I wanted to say. Or what if I foul it up and I misquote scripture, which I've done quite often. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm like, ah, there's all these things that could go wrong. And then one day we had Pastor Bill Johnson at our church in Nevada in the 90s and he was, this was when he was just dreaming about what he's seeing now with renewal and the healing and the miraculous. And he's standing in front of our church and he says, there's coming a day when the anointing is going to be so strong that all you have to do is say peanut butter and people will say, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I can say peanut butter. <laughs> And God said, that's it, Wendy. I don't want you to have faith in your ability to speak. I want you to have faith in my ability to anoint what you say. Amen. Believe big. I now believe I can say it all wrong and you will hear it all right. Because God is that big. Because he is so into setting people free that he can use a backslidden, pot-smoking Christian. And he can use me. Not because of my great ability to speak, but because of his great ability to anoint. To set people free. And that's not just for public speaking. That's for if you get tongue-tied praying out loud. That's for if you're counseling. That's if you're witnessing. Don't have faith in what you say. Have faith in your anointing. What is placed on your life. Dream about it. You know, unconsciously, we're always imagining things going wrong. Do you know that the imagination was not built for the enemy to have a playground? There's a specific reason why God created an imagination. And I believe it was for faith. Because faith isn't blind, it's visionary. And the reason a lot of us don't have enough faith is because we've never seen what we're believing for. We don't take the time to imagine it in our, our, our life. Do you know why the enemy wants to paint a picture of lack? 
you know why your mind starts running through this thing of what am I going to do when not enough money for the bills come in? What am I going to do when I pray for this person and nothing happens? I mean, let's be real. How many of us have prayed for people and we're already thinking, this is what I'll say when nothing happens? Because <laughs> that's where our faith is. Because that's what we've imagined. The enemy knows that if he can get us to picture it, we will attach faith to it. Because faith, I mean, the imagination is the womb of faith. The word of God is a seed, and your imagination is the womb for the seed. So good. <coughs> we have, you know, when the children of Israel <coughs> sent the spies into the promised land, they all came back with the same report of the circumstances. All 12 of them admitted they were giants. It was the conclusion that was different. Because one, in their imagination, saw themselves, I mean the ten, saw themselves as small and the giants as big. Joshua and Caleb, in their imagination, somehow thought these giants were their bread. What were they thinking? What was going on in their imagination that they thought that the giants were lunch? The circumstance doesn't matter. It's how you see the circumstance that matters. Do you see through the eyes of the Spirit? What have you seen? If faith is visionary, what do you see? What are you attaching faith to? You know, even the, the natural realm it gives evidence to the Word of God. Don't you love how science is actually catching up to the Bible? Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> and actually, sometimes it's revealing the Bible in, in how God has worked things. Yes. And I heard a doctor once say that if, if you offend me and I go home and rehearse it 30 times, my brain doesn't know the difference between the actual event and the 30 rehearsals, reenactments. To, to your, your whole being, it's like it's happening over and over and over again. So the next time I see you, I'm probably going to overreact, and you're going to be thinking, why is she overreacting? All I did was this. No, you did that 31 times. <laughs> because every time I reenacted it was just as real. It's why we use phrases like, you always... Well, no, they don't always. It's just that you only rehearse the times they do. You haven't highlighted the times they didn't. It's why we use the word never. You never. And that's not true either. You only rehearse when they don't. You haven't even noticed when they did. Because your brain 
already has been working through imagination on building a stronghold of how you view life. What you see, what you don't see. In fact, they say that your brain is only conscious of 40% of what your eyes are actually seeing. So if you look around the room right now, you will only be aware of 40% of what's actually in the room. And the 40% you do become conscious of is based on past experience and patterns that you've seen through your lifetime. I read a uh, secular book about a brain scientist who, at the age of 35, she was at the top of her field, you know, going to universities, speaking on the brain. And at age 35, she had a stroke, and she lost the complete use of the side of your brain that you need to be a scientist. Wow. Complete loss. And her mom brought her home, and she was going to rehabilitate her herself so that she could give her more time. And one of the things that she discovered is that she wasn't seen in color because she was trying to teach her to put puzzle pieces together and she said, well, one side has color and one side doesn't, so turn the side up that has color. And she's like, what's color? So she starts talking to her about colors and hues and depth. And, and the scientist actually wrote a book about it. She said, as soon as my brain understood the concept of color, I began to see in color. And then she said, her mom discovered that she was only seeing one-dimensionally. So everything looked like a photograph. She couldn't tell, you know, depth and dimension. In fact, she said her sense of dimension was so impaired that she couldn't tell where she began and ended. But serious depth perception, <laughs> lots going on. So her mom starts talking to her about dimension and how you can tell some things are further away. And she said, as soon as my brain understood the concept of dimension, I began to see three-dimensionally. I read that and I thought I'd been reading the Bible all wrong. What if the Bible is trying to get us to understand the concept of another dimension called the kingdom? And the only reason we're not conscious of the, what if our eyes are seeing angels? But we're not conscious of it because we don't have a grid for it. What if we started reading the Bible imagining what that looks like so that, you know, the Bible should actually create a whole new reality for you. Yeah. Not the reality based on your past, but the reality of a new identity. Is this a good time for a break? Because I, I, the next thing I want to get into, I don't want to mess it up, so... Yeah, Wendy has a nice long session with us this morning, so we'll just take, what, 10 minutes? Yeah. Can you stand up, stretch your legs, and then we'll pick right back up.
After I speak and said, oh, when you said this, it just, you know, totally uh, set me free. And I'm thinking, I didn't say that. <laughs> but if God said that to you, great. He's so big. You know, I used to, my goal in life used to be just don't fail, Wendy. Just, you know, because that was embarrassing. And, uh. So I, I thought the sign of a good year was no failure. And God said, you know, that's not a good year. That just means you haven't done anything. It just means you're only doing what you think you can do. What would happen to a baby if it decided failure was the, avoiding failure was the goal? Yeah. Never stand, never try to speak, never try to walk. Failure is part of the process, and we have to give ourselves permission to fail. It means you're doing something. It's true. <laughs> Just get over it. I went through a year where, because I was so shy and um, afraid, that, and I don't want to scare anybody with this, because it was a supernatural year where he just set me up for failure after failure. He was requiring me to do things that I could not do well in front of people. Until I actually started doing it with great faith that I don't care if I'm not doing it well, God can use it. It just got me out of, you know, and he's not going to do that for everybody. And don't try to make that happen. <laughs> you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because there's some of you out there that you'll be like, okay, what can I fail at? You know. Like, just do what God's telling you to do. And be okay with the fact that you don't do it perfectly. That's I, I kind of feel like um, an old saying is coming to mind. Of, I heard a speaker once say that he felt like a mosquito in a nudist camp. It's <laughs> kind of how I feel right now. It's like so many places to land, but how to choose. <laughs> weight and my clothes come first because my dad is in here.
John 10, 10. This is Jesus speaking. He says, The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And in the New King James, it says, It's to give life and that, thank you, and that life more abundantly. So I got saved radically, you know, saved. I mean, just night and day of really getting into a connection with Jesus and his love and what he's done. And, um, but after a few years, it ended up just dwindling into performance and religion and, you know, trying to look like a Christian. And I was reading that scripture one day. And I thought, if this is an abundant life, then I don't want it. <coughs> Have you ever read the story about the emperor's new clothes? Yeah. You know, he's having his this royal ball and all these tailors, you know, come and they all want to make his new outfit, and this one guy comes, and he has this invisible material that only the great and wise can see. And everybody's afraid to say they can't see the material, because then everybody will know they're not wise. And so even the king falls into it, and so he chooses this tailor to you know, sew up his royal garments, and he goes out into parade with nothing on. And all of a sudden, a little boy goes, Mommy, why isn't the king wearing any clothes? And everybody realizes, oh, there really isn't anything there. And that's how my Christian life was. I was, because Christians are supposed to be happy, they're supposed to have peace. They're supposed to feel empowered and loved. And so I pretended like I was wearing the clothes of a Christian. But inside, I was naked and poor and totally unhappy. And until I actually admitted it, I couldn't get relief. And I had to stop thinking that something was wrong with me. Maybe it's not something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not believing the correct thing. Because God's promises have to be true. And if they're not true in my life, then I'm not, I'm not doing something wrong. I'm believing something wrong. Yes. We had an intern <clears throat> quite a few years ago that he, um, for his third year of Bethel School of Supernatural, he interned for us and he loved our message because we were all about, you know, that it's not about what you, it's not as much what you do as what you believe. And he loved the message and he loved witnessing. <coughs> he would go out on the streets and lead people to the Lord. But he had one problem. Every time someone would say they were an atheist, his belief in his ability to lead them to the Lord would just plummet because he, he'd never had any success in leading atheists to the Lord. And so he's thinking about that one day and he goes, okay, 
I need a new belief system. And so he starts declaring, whenever I'm around an atheist, God always shows up. That was his new belief system. So he goes to the UK, and he leads a team out to the park to witness, and he comes up to this group of teenagers, and he says, hi, I'm from America, and I've got some really good news, you know, kind of shares a little bit, and the leader of the group steps forward, and she goes, I'm an atheist. And he goes, oh, really? That's so exciting. <laughs> and she's like, why? You know, because atheists are used to Christians spiritually backing off yeah. or arguing. Yeah. And she goes, why? And he goes, because God always shows up when I'm around an atheist. <laughs> and he says, would you like to feel him? <laughs> I'd love to have been there. I'm like, what are they thinking at this moment? Because they, they go, sure, you know. Right, right. And so he gets them in a circle and he goes, now put out your hands and repeat after me. <laughs> Holy Spirit, come. Remember, these aren't saved people. One's an atheist. And they say, Holy Spirit, come. And guess what Holy Spirit does? Yes! She starts crying and shaking under the presence of the Lord. They all get saved. Simply because he shifted what he believed. Oh yeah, because another group got saved in the park too that day and the pastor called my husband and said our, our local high school has never been the same. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, is when we do something that God is telling us to do and it doesn't work, we usually say, what am I doing wrong? Maybe I need to take another evangelism class. What if the problem isn't what you're doing? What if the problem is what you're believing while you do it? He didn't shift anything about how he witnessed. He believed something different. You know, my husband and I, we love God. And we're, we're, we were always, when we got saved, it was like, God... We want to do great things for you. We want to influence the world for Christ. And he said, you know, instead of doing great things for me, why don't you do what you're doing with great faith? If your job right now is cleaning toilets, do it with great faith. You know, you go in, you clean the toilet, the next person who sits on this is going to have an encounter with Jesus. <laughs> Whoever sits on this toilet's going to be totally healed and delivered. I guarantee if you did that, you'd have people lining up to use your toilets. I kind of got that. I have a really close friend who, they were in the mission field and when they first went to Africa to be missionaries, 
she had little kids that were too young to be put into the school, and so she was home. You know, it, it was the big dream. We're, we're going to be missionaries. But what she did was iron shirts and clean the house and take care of kids, and her husband got to go out and be a missionary. And one day she was ironing. I mean, this tells you how long ago this was. I'm in my 60s. You guys know what an iron is, right? <laughs> so she's ironing her husband's shirt. And God says, why don't you prophesy over the shirt? And she's like, okay, when he wears this shirt, he's going to have such an anointing to heal the sick. Raise the dead. He's going to feel your presence when he's wearing this shirt. What would happen if we did small things in a great way? What if we incorporated the supernatural into our everyday life? What if we started believing that when we walk by people, our shadows heal them? We tend to think, oh, that can't happen to me. I'm not, you know, I'm not anointed enough. <clears throat> That's not true. I remember crying out, seeing these powerful men and women of God, and I'm like, God, we want your anointing. We want to be able to do the stuff and, you know, raise the dead and heal the sick. And he just interrupted me and he said, Wendy, it's not that hard to be anointed. <laughs> what? Because it seems hard, because most of us aren't. Or we don't think we are. And he said, no, it's not that hard. Even a handkerchief can do it. <laughs> Acts 19. The aprons and handkerchiefs, all they had to do was be in the presence of someone who was anointed. And they would take those handkerchiefs, and it would heal the sick, and it would even cast out demons. The only difference between you and a handkerchief is this. <laughs> Mindsets. We have to stop striving so hard to do and be what God's already made us. You know, sometimes when I find myself striving in prayer, I just stop and pretend to be a handkerchief. <laughs> attach my faith to, I, I believe, you know how if you go out and sit in the sun, if you guys have sun, <laughs> just teasing, we're not sure at this point, if you've heard about the sun, if you stay out too long, you don't have to strive to get a, a sunburn or a suntan. You're just in the presence of the sun. Yes. And it will affect your skin. Awesome. Yes. Right. That's good. All you have to do is be in the presence of the sun. Amen. And it will affect you. There is substance to the unseen realm. We, we tend to think that the unseen realm of the kingdom of God is so, ooh, it's way out there. And it's, you know, we're trying to get it. It's not like that. I remember, <clears throat> well, let me put it this way. If I had a handkerchief 
and I told you that this handkerchief was in the possession of someone with a really contagious disease, and they'd been sneezing, coughing, blowing their nose in it for three days. Now, most of us have never seen a germ, but we would have great faith in that handkerchief's ability to affect us. Because not many of us would grab that handkerchief and rub it in our face. Do you remember when Jesus was walking through the crowd and they were pressing in upon him and the woman with the issue of blood reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and he stops everything and goes, who touched me? And the disciples say, everybody, it's crowded. You have been touched by everybody. And he said, no, I felt divine virtue leave me. In other words, a substance of the unseen realm went through him and affected her. Yeah. So if I had another handkerchief and I said, this has been in the prayer room for the last three days. Which handkerchief would you have the most faith for? Our problem is, is we don't really believe in the substance of the unseen realm. I had an experience that totally changed my life. It's actually why I even wrote the book, Living from the Unseen, is I had gotten up in the middle of the night. Earlier that day, in my devotions, I'd read the scripture where Jesus had died, the disciples are in the locked room, and Jesus just appears in the room. Remember that story? I got nothing out of it for devotions, but <laughs> later that night, I'm up at 3 a.m., just sitting there waiting on God, trying to figure out why he woke me up, and Jesus goes, hey, Wendy, do you know how I got into the locked room? And, you know, you know it's God, because you wouldn't come up with that thought yourself. So I'm like, well, I've seen ghost movies. <laughs> And in my understanding that when people die, they become ghost-like. They don't have any substance, so they can walk through walls. So I told them, you know, you were dead. You were ghost-like. You had no substance, so you could walk through walls. And he goes, no, I'm more real than the wall. And I'm like trying to get my head around it. And he says, the creator cannot have less substance than the creation. And I realized that's my problem. To me, this realm, my flesh, has more substance than the spirit realm. A spirit created this realm, and it is spirit that will influence it. When you're born again of the spirit, you actually become more spirit than flesh. You just don't define yourself that way. We need to be reminded of what we really are. We need to know that the reason God can require us 
to heal the sick and raise the dead is because as spirit beings, partakers of the divine nature, we now actually have the ability to do that. Yes. He doesn't ask you to do what you're not created to do. Because that would just be mean. But we have to start redefining who and what we are. Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that word transformed is the same Greek word we get the word metamorphosis from, which is caterpillar turning into butterfly. And according to science, caterpillars don't evolve into butterflies. They actually have two distinct sets of DNA. And while it's a caterpillar, the butterfly DNA is dormant. And when it goes into the cocoon, the caterpillar DNA begins to slough off and die. And the butterfly DNA rises up and, according to the article I read, actually creates a whole new creation. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I read that and I thought, oh, that's my problem. I've been trying to become a better caterpillar. <laughs> a new and improved caterpillar. I thought God was requiring me as a caterpillar to fly. The reason he requires you to fly is because now it's in your DNA to fly. It's in your DNA to be holy. We just have to actually begin to redefine ourselves. Who we are, what we're capable of. The reason so many of us don't really experience the abundant life that God wants for us is because we still think we're caterpillars. Our thinking is so small. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then I read in science article that for a long time they understood that our DNA and our genes were influenced by, you know, our ancestors, and then they discovered also our environment, because your genes and your DNA have, there's so much potential in them, and only a fraction of your genes and your DNA actually get turned on. And they discovered some of them get turned on just because of hereditary things, but some of them get turned on because of your environment, and now they've discovered that what you believe will turn them on. <laughs> and turn them off. So if you have a generational um, um, predisposition for early heart attacks, if you believe in that, it actually increases the likelihood of having an early heart attack. What are we believing? Why are we listening so intently to the experts? 
my husband and I decided we're going to just rebel against the experts. Amen. Do you know what the experts used to say? They said that it is impossible. These were medical experts, doctors, scientists. It's medically impossible for a man to run a mile under a minute because of the way he's built. And everybody believed the experts until Roger Bannister ran the mile under a minute. Four minutes, yes, thank you. And after he did it, a whole bunch more people did it because the limit had been removed. We keep using our past life to determine our limits. What have we dreamed? But, Wendy, what have I dreamed wrong? Well, at least you had more fun. <laughs> right? Yes, amen, amen. You know, they say that 80% of what you worry about never happens. That's a lot of wasted energy. Or maybe it's 85%. So my husband and I, we like to worry with God. We like to just dream about, you know, uh, you know, we'll say things like, I'm so worried that, you know, we're going to get up there to speak and God's going to fall so heavily that we all go into a trance and we're still there the next day. I'm worried that I'm going to walk into Walmart and people will fall out under the spirit and they won't let me in again. <laughs> Why aren't we worried about these things? Why aren't we worried that goodness and mercy might actually catch us? I mean, we quote Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, but nobody ever imagines it happening. <laughs> I can't tell you how my life has been changed when I started worrying in the positive. Started dreaming about good actually happening. What if I succeed? What if I pray and something happens? We have to become aware of what we're actually thinking in our head. You know, one of the things about deception is you don't know you're deceived. And the way you know you're deceived is if there's no hope attached to it. One of my favorite things to think, as soon as, you know how when <clears throat> bad things happen, especially unexpected, like a, a big bill you weren't thinking that was coming, and all of a sudden it's like this big gray cloud just sits on you. It's like, oh, now, oh my goodness. Um, now, what are we going to do? Do you know what the best thing to think at that moment? This is my question. What do I need to believe to have hope for this? 
Because God has hope for this. There's always a solution. There's always a way. Somehow, I am 61 or 62, I don't know. <laughs> Somehow, I have continued to survive through life. And my children, too. It's amazing. Create new thought patterns on purpose. My husband and I's favorite declaration is there's always a solution. Did you know that if your brain doesn't think there's a solution, it won't look for one? Wow. You, you will think you're looking for one. But subconsciously, your brain has already determined that there is no solution. So it will spin you around in circles. So before you even ask God for a solution, you might want to start asking God to convince you there is one. When you're in fear, don't try to pray the circumstance different until you get rid of your fear. Because faith is the power behind your prayer. Start reminding yourself how big God is, how faithful he is. Stop using your past to determine your future. God didn't come through then. Wow. Well, is that what you want more of? <laughs> it's not for condemnation. We all have these things in our lives because we're all growing, we're all learning how to increase our faith, how to have a different mindset because if you want to get somewhere different than you've been, you have to believe something different first. Everything started shifting when I started focusing on renewing my mind with the Word. Not just, you know, memorizing the Word, but actually believing the Word. Coming into inner agreement with it. I'm really big on inner agreement. You know, we. I remember once praying for... Um, unity in the body of Christ and I'm like oh God we just need unity and he's like you know Wendy if I could just get you into unity with you I could change the world <laughs> we're a three part being and we don't realize how often every day we are living in disharmony just to be honest when Steve and I first started traveling um I started putting on a lot of weight because Christians love language is food. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Here, have more chicken and dumplings and dessert. And, you know, and when you're traveling, all you do is sit around in airports and planes and meetings and speak. And so I was putting on weight pretty rapidly. And I decided, okay, I'm gonna lose this weight. I can't keep doing this. I was starting to have, you know, different body issues from it. And, you know, I'm fairly disciplined, I think. And so I started dieting. Well, actually, before I started dieting, I'm a researcher. So I first went online to find out, you know, all about women my age and losing weight. And what I discovered is that women my age can't lose weight. <laughs> you know, just because of the, yeah, it was the experts. Your hormones have shifted, your metabolism is lowered, you know. But I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna lose weight. 
And so I start dieting, and I'm hardly eating anything and still not losing any weight. And finally, I'm just frustrated, and I'm like, I don't know what else to do, you know, unless I just fast for 40 days. And, you know, when you're on the road, you need a little energy. And he's like, well, why are you trying to do something you don't believe you can do? He said, you're, you're in disharmony. You're opposing yourself. And I'm like, oh, I teach this stuff. <laughs> it's like, every area of your life, you have to take what God's taking you and apply it in even the most random things. And he said, I want you to stop dieting, and I want you to spend the next three to four months declaring that you lose weight easily. So I want you to believe you can lose weight before you try to lose weight. So I started making de declarations. I'm a fat-burning machine. I lose weight easily. I just look at food and lose weight. Yes. And so I did that. And at the end of about three months, my daughter, who she's a real um, gym nut, she loves CrossFit, and she's talking to me about this doctor that comes to her gym and how he's a holistic doctor. He used to be a regular doctor, but he decided he wanted to go into the holistic field and how much success he's been having with women my age. So I go and I find out that I've got all this inflammation in my body. And so he gives me the correct diet for me because we're all built differently. And our bodies react to things differently. And I go on this thing, and I just start losing weight. My energy comes back, everything. You know, it's, it's not that you don't do anything, but you change what you believe first, and it's like this divine convergence starts happening. The right people come into your life at the right time. The right word gets spoken over you. It's something supernatural. It's amazing. I remember, you know, the supernatural, the substance of it. I have a friend that when we pastored in Nevada, he had gone to um, Bethel in Redding, California, and he had a sozo. You guys know what sozos are? You know, just kind of a, it was, it was an inner healing thing where they just kind of lead you through prayer and find out what your, you know, some of the deeper issues in your life is. And so he discovered that part of his self-worth issue was the fact that his dad had never, ever said, I love you. Ever. He'd never heard the words. And so they, they lead him through prayer or forgiveness and just allow Holy Spirit to minister in that area of woundedness and and he feels free. He feels like, you know, that's okay. My dad wasn't able to say, I love you, but I know he does love me. And he just feels good about it. He goes home, and the next day his dad calls him. And at the end of the conversation, he, his dad goes, and son, I love you. Oh. Why? Wow. What, what happened in the unseen realm? Another instance was when we first moved to Nevada to become senior leaders, when we were the third pastor, it was a 10-year-old church that had been planted by one guy. He stayed for, I don't know, 
maybe three or four years, and then another pastor, and we were the third pastor. And I'm in a prayer meeting with some ladies, and they start talking about the first pastor's wife. And I discover that she still lives in town, and the reason they were no longer pastoring is because while they were pastoring, she had an affair with the local sheriff. And so the pastor left town. She ended up marrying the sheriff and was still in town. And I could tell they were still really bitter and angry about, you know, the reputation of the church was ruined because of her and all this stuff. And so I'm like, you know, I believe in forgiveness, but even more than forgiveness, I heard myself say, I think we not only need to forgive her, I think we need to release her from the consequences of her sin. And they go, okay. So we pray a, a prayer of releasing, you know, from the consequences of her sin. We don't tell anybody about this prayer, but the very next day she calls my husband, the ex-pastor's wife, and she says, can I come to church on Sunday and ask forgiveness? Wow. What happened? This can't be coincidence. Something happens in the spirit realm. I have another friend who, he's a pastor in Texas, and his mom was a Buddhist, and she was very resistant to the gospel. And she got really sick. She's in the hospital. She's out of it. And he's sitting alone in her room. And she was so resistant to the gospel that she wrote in her wheel, no one can say the name of Jesus at my funeral. And I don't want anyone to pray over me. That's how resistant she was. So he's sitting in her hospital room just crying out silently, God, don't let my mom die without knowing you. Please don't let her die. And a scripture pops into his head. I don't know if you remember the scripture, but it's where Jesus had died. He meets up with the apostles, and he blows in their face. He breathes on them and says, Your sins are forgiven. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So that scripture pops into his head, and he thinks it's an evangelistic tool. So he stands up, leans over his mom's face, blows in her face and goes, Mom, your sins are forgiven you. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And her eyes pop open. And she points to the back of the room and she goes, Do you see him? Do you see the man in white? And he's like, Mom, are you seeing Jesus? Yes, and he's beautiful. What happened? In the unseen realm, I think that our sins cause us not to see. We are so blinded by our faults that we can't see God's goodness. We can, you know, we don't have to convince people intellectually to get them saved. We just have to bring them the light so they can see. I'm fully convinced it's not a will issue. It's a sight issue. Because the only reason someone would actually reject Jesus is because they've never met the real Jesus. Because they're afraid of failure. They don't know about the abundant life. 
want to see the real you, God. Thank you that your kingdom, the unseen realm, has even more substance than the chair we're sitting on, the things that our eyes are seeing. We want to understand the transformation that you actually want to happen within us. We just release people from their caterpillarhood and we speak to the DNA, the partakers in Christ, the new creation that you've created. And I just release you from the bondage of your past and I call you forth. You are alive. Jesus gives you life, a new creation. And I call you forth out of the grave clothes and out of the tomb of your past, your tomb of shame and guilt. We release you from it and we call you into a new life, free from the past, free from the past. release an anointing to dream about what we're capable of. That we'd no longer be tethered to the limitations of who we were. Can I just have a few extra minutes? Yes. I just feel like the yes. Holy Spirit wants me to share something. How many have watched um, The Greatest Showman? Such a prophetic movie. It may not have been written by Christians, but it's a call from God. Amen. It's a call from God. And um, I just want to sing. (laughs) Not sing. I don't want to scare anybody here. Like a zombie in a maze, you're asleep inside, but you can shake awake. Because you're just a dead man walking, thinking that's your only option. But you can flip the switch and brighten up your darkest day. Sun is up and the color's blinding. Take the world and redefine it. Leave behind your narrow mind. You'll never be the same. 
Come alive, come alive. Go and ride your light. Let it burn so bright. Reaching up to the sky and it's open wide. You're electrified. When the world becomes a fantasy and you're more than you could ever be because you're dreaming with your eyes wide open. And you know you can't go back again to the world that you were living in because you're dreaming with your eyes wide open. So come alive. I see it in your eyes. You believe that lie that you need to hide your face, afraid to step outside. So you lock the door, but don't you stay that way. No more living in those shadows. You and me, we know how that goes. Because once you see it, oh, you'll never, never be the same. We'll be the light that's shining. Bottle up and keep on trying. You can prove there's more to you. You cannot be afraid. Come alive. Come alive. Go and ride your light. Let it burn so bright. Reaching up to the sky. And it's open wide. You're electrified. When the world becomes a fantasy. And you're more than you could ever be. Because you're dreaming with your eyes wide open. And we know we can't go back again. To the world that we were living in. Because we're dreaming with our eyes wide open. So come alive. Come one, come all, come in, come on. To anyone who's bursting with a dream. Come one, come all, you hear the call. To anyone who's searching for a way to break free. Break free, break free. When the world becomes a fantasy and you're more than you could ever be because you're dreaming with your eyes wide open. And we know we can't go back again to the world that we were living in because we're dreaming with our eyes wide open. So come alive. This is the season. I really believe that song was written. Because, you know, if, if God can't speak to us, he'll speak through donkeys. He wants the message out. My people, it's time to come alive. Come out of the shadows. I mean, that whole movie is so prophetic, even right down to the famous song that came out of it, This Is Me. No apologies. This is me. Be you. You are more than enough. The only thing that makes you not more than enough is when you're striving to become more than you are. You don't need to. Who you are is perfectly powerful, and great. But we have to believe it. We have to start dreaming of what would it be like to be more than enough. That just walking down the street can influence the world. We make it too hard. Be a handkerchief. <laughs> be a handkerchief. And believe in the unseen realm. Allow the word of God to affect your view of reality. It doesn't make you blind. You still see the giants. It just affects how you see the giants. And that's the dream. So, bless you guys. So that was amazing. <laughs> um, that was amazing. That was amazing. Um,
I, we, we want to, yeah, I'm gonna, I, we were going to have you guys do a parent share, but we want you to do that at lunch.